Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Chakra Way Meditation Podcast. Today I have a fellow meditation teacher joining me. Tom Cronin is not only a meditation teacher but an author, a filmmaker, a coach and he speaks at events around the world. He has a massive following and has changed the lives of thousands of people around the world. I was hugely flattered that he reached out to me to be on my podcast as he is a veritable tuner to my minnow in the sea of meditation teachers. But we come from very much the same place in that we know that the more people who learn to develop a meditation practice of whatever flavor is a step towards a healthier, happier and more peaceful world. He has huge energy and vast knowledge and experience in this field. So I was delighted to talk about all things meditation. I hope you enjoy our chat. So welcome, Tom. I'm very excited to have um, a very well-known and successful meditation teacher and general guru all the way from the other side of the world in Australia, Sydney, Australia today. Um, So welcome, Tom Cronin. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. I always love chatting with fellow meditation teachers, mindfulness coaches, yogis, and um, yeah, chatting about these amazing things that we can talk about on podcasts. So looking forward to it. Excellent. So listen, let's just dive straight in with um, a bit of your CV. And I mean, the thing that I'm most interested in to begin with is your journey into finding meditation and how that came about, where, you know, how you found out, how you found it, basically, and your journey. Mm. Yeah, well, I I was a million miles away from being a meditator. I was on a trading room floor, very much like Wolf of Wall Street, and uh, it was very hectic. And it's actually an English company. I kept at the time it was a different name, Hello Butler. 
and uh, the day was very much similar to what the film portrayed in Wolf of Wall Street. Um, it was frenetic, it was hectic, and we're turning over you know millions and billions of dollars worth of um, swaps and bonds on international markets. And you know it, what happened over time was I, I started getting a lot of stress. There's a lot of things in the um, I guess poor choices in the lifestyle patterns and habits that we had in that industry, but. Needless to say, what that led to was a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress over time. When my body was showing up a lot of symptoms, and uh, it eventually led to quite a sort of nervous system collapse, where I became quite incapacitated in some ways. I couldn't go to work. I um, was very much uh, struggling to just sort of even find the gumption to keep going in life. I questioned whether I wanted to keep going. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attacks, a deep depression, real sense of misery. But it was in that time that I came across meditation. It was something that I saw being talked about on TV in a documentary. And it was a very much a light bulb moment for me. So that was when I started to look into different modalities, different ways of meditating, different traditions and different practices. And um, it really was quite transformational for me when I found particularly one meditation technique. I really um, noticed significant changes in my physical, mental and emotional state. To the point where I became um, very capable again, went back to work and continued on for another 16 more years in that career. So meditation played an integral role in me having a all up a 26-year career in finance as a broker. Wow. Okay, so where did you start your journey? Like how did you, what type of meditation was it that you got into? And then at what point did you decide, uh, I'm going to chuck this incredibly lucrative career aside and become a full-time meditation teacher when that how did that happen how did that come around yeah we'll get to that that was a big step but it's obviously um initially not the most financially uh stable career choice to leave uh, a very stable 16 26 year career in finance to go and become a meditation teacher but we'll get to that in a moment um the documentary the guy that was doing the meditation it was about a property developer of all things and he just touched on how we use this meditation style to help him be successful and be calm. And this was pre-apps. It was even before internet, so it was 1996. But he used this word, transcendental meditation. Now, I was really into, you know, let's just get straight to it. I was doing a lot of drugs and partying. Uh, I was really into the the nightclubs, the raves, the whole um, music scene. And the whole idea of that premise of that was kind of to transcend, transcend reality, get out of it a little bit. Escape, isn't it? And there's something about... Yeah, I guess it was, you know, it was, it was, it was some can say escape. Um, I like to use the word heightened sense of pleasure yeah. and that might be escape, but it's still an available heightened sense of pleasure that's in this realm. So you're not really escaping. You're just elevating yourself to new level. Now there might be some karmic consequences with a style of approach to that, but ultimately everything that we're all doing in every single day is seeking fulfillment. And that's whether we're cleaning the bathroom floor running a podcast, meditating, or going to the gym or going to the movies. It's its all seeking pleasure and fulfillment. I was just taking it to the nth degree through the activities that I was doing. Um, it's just that a lot of the seeking of fulfillment comes with karmic consequences, cause and effect. Anyway, needless to say that uh, the, the actions that I was taking weren't that fruitful. But when I heard this transcendental meditation, I really sort of was pulled into this idea of this transcending still as something about that really appealed to me. And so when I learned that technique, I literally went to the Yellow Pages and looked up Transcendental Meditation. And then I went to uh, an introductory talk and the teacher talked a lot about the science, 
statistics, the, um, the, you know, the validated um, medical studies, university studies, uh, so many different studies were validating the, the phenomenal effect this technique was having on people. So I learned the technique and it was a game changer for me. It literally changed my life to the point where I just couldn't believe that the world wasn't doing it. I was just gobsmacked that people weren't doing this and I became a bit annoying because I was sort of suggesting everyone should do it. Um, so that was a starting point into meditation and it really was to get rid of the anxiety and depression and the insomnia and that went away very, very quickly. The addictions went away very quickly. So it was quite amazing how quickly it turned my life around. Um, then I went on another 16 years, but during that time in that career as a broker, I continued doing my studies deep into more advanced sort of Vedic philosophies, more advanced practices, uh, studying in India, doing a lot of retreats and really starting to explore deeper into the depths of consciousness, mindfulness, spirituality and Eastern philosophy. And it wasn't until 16 years after learning the meditation that it became more and more apparent that I was more and more equipped and more and more capable at having a bigger impact in the world of being a broker. And I think part of it was that I was advancing my spiritual studies so much further. Part of it was just an age thing, that I was getting older, you know, and as we get older we sort of tick off boxes and, you know, I had the, the wife and the kids and the big house and um, all those successful things that we generally kind of measure ourselves by but there was something deeper inside of me that was still calling out and that was to be relevant, to be purposeful, to have an impact, to leave, um, I guess, a more positive uh, effect on the world. And so then uh, I really felt a calling to go and start to bring this out to the world in a bigger way. And that's when I started to leave. Okay. So how did you start? How did you start this, this you know, this independent being a meditation teacher? Like where do you, where did you mm. begin? Because there weren't podcasts yeah. back then, you know. Well, I guess yeah, when was that? There wasn't. No, there was no podcast. There was no. Um, there was just the very early stages of the internet. And what actually started happening was the technique I learned was only ever taught in one particular way. Uh, that's in person. It's quite expensive. It was taught over four consecutive sessions, and um, you know you can only teach people in the vicinity of you. So that was literally sitting in front of you. Yeah. And when the internet suddenly emerged, I started blogging. It was a, that was the new thing. And I was doing a lot of articles about how uh, and doing a lot of speaking. I was speaking on stages, a lot of events, conferences. I was speaking in Mexico, in Bali. I was invited to, to get my message out. So a lot of that came through my blogging. But um, what happened was uh, I started talking a lot about this incredible technique of meditation that had changed my life and helped remove anxiety and depression and insomnia very very quickly so a lot of people around the world all of a sudden started asking me if I could teach them and I couldn't because it just wasn't done that way and I was really in a conundrum because there's the uh, I guess the um, reverence and respect and the acknowledgement of the tradition and wanting to maintain that tradition and then there was this need of the time where all these people around the world were saying you've got to help me please help me and so I was really kind of perplexed as to how I was going to navigate this way through this. So what I did was something that had never been done before. Uh, it still to this day is, I think, one of the world's first meditation programs that took this um, Vedic practice and put it into a digital format. So this was really uncharted waters. We didn't know if it was going to work. Um, you know, we didn't know what the effects and ramifications were of um, making this available to the masses. And so I created an online program called Fast Deeper Bliss. And still to this day, it's, gosh, eight, nine years old now. It's still is changing people's lives every day. So that was kind of like one of the key things of getting this practice into the households of the world. 
I still teach it traditionally in the traditional format. I think there's something really powerful and beautiful about maintaining that that practice of teaching it that way. Um, and then I run was running retreats on the back of that. And then it sort of started to grow um, into online programs, into retreats, into corporate programs. And then I started coaching uh, because I found that the students that started to learn meditation with me um, were wanting more support, more guidance on the sort of integration application of that to life. And then over time I had more people wanting to get um, guidance on how to set up a sort of business model like I'd set up as a conscious leader. So yoga teachers, meditation teachers, healers, um, they started becoming clients and I set up a, a six-month coaching program for those people to help them kind of shortcut what I'd been doing. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, that all sounds like it's just like rolled out. It was like meant to be. It just happened like <laughs> and all from your blogging, which is amazing. And I guess podcasting is that sort of is the modern day equivalent of blogging, isn't it? I remember when. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a better format. Uh, it's more accessible. Um, yeah. Look, blogs got kind of what what sort of, I guess, replaced blogs was actually short form content in Instagram. And so Instagram and Facebook um, hadn't emerged really um, prior to the blogging. So blogging was the big thing. So I was putting a lot of content out there, insights that I sort of would get these downloads all the time that put into an article and it was about growing your database and you know, sharing your, um, your, your offers. But then when Instagram and Facebook kind of blogs are still there roughly, but they've got a different format, but a lot of my content went into Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so back to sort of some more nitty gritty, the type of meditation that you're talking about, transcendental meditation, mm-hmm. is Vedic meditation the same thing as transcendental meditation? It depends if you're a lawyer or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a it's a, an area to walk carefully. Uh, the techniques are very very similar. Uh, they uh, there was a bit of a split between the two. Um, Transcendental Meditation is doing amazing work, amazing group of people, um, really so um, in respect and awe of what they're doing. Um, I was taught by a, a teacher that um, was no longer part of the Transcendental Meditation organisation uh, for, for many particular reasons. And so by default, because I was taught by that teacher that was not officially under the Transcendental Meditation organisation, um, I was not technically allowed to uh, call myself a transcendental meditation student or teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the techniques are very, very similar with mantras. There's a puja, um, you know, four sessions. You meditate 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. So um, one would say that they're very, very, very close. Yeah. So the thing that fascinates me about um, these mantra-based um, meditations um, is that I know that uh, what happens is that your teacher gives you your mantra and you don't really, you don't share what your mantra is. You, it's yours. It's, it's energetically, it's yours. Um, and what, as a teacher, what I'm interested to know is like, do you give, I know you're giving away trade secrets. Do you give everyone the same mantra or does like, okay. does it just drop in what the right mantra for that person is? How does, how do you decide what mantra people receive when they're learning yeah, you know, there's a lot of mysticism around it and it always perplexes me as a teacher because I'm all about transparency and I think that we're going through a time where all these ancient mystical practices are going to be um, revealed for what they are and I think it's really important that we're seeing transparency on all levels of life now. And this is partly what the internet does. Um, I actually remember going to a talk by a teacher that talked about the mysticism and the 
the how he cognizes the mantra, but really uh, it's it's very explanatory and very black and white. And I tell all of my students this that it's chosen based upon when they were born and a particular age that they are when they learn to meditate. So it's not too mystical. And the reason why we recommend not to share it, um, only because what, why I recommend anyway, is because the, the mantra has a beautiful quality about it. It's a primordial vibration. So it's not a word or a, has a sort of an objective sort of, um, sort of identification to it. And the quality of the mantra is that what it does is that it moves the mind away from forms and phenomenon where the mind naturally gravitates. So all day your mind has been projecting externally, future, past and present to a form of phenomenon that will activate some form of disruption or charge in your vessel, which is an energetic um, shift. And that's why your mind is so intent on thinking because of the feeling that comes with the thinking that inspires it. So that thinking is projecting externally to a form of phenomenon for that particular reason to get the charge, the, 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 uh, the energetic um, shift. Now, what the mantra does is it takes the mind in a completely opposite direction. Uh, it's a transcending mantra, Bij mantra. And Bij, B-I-J-A, is a mantra that um, has a quality about it to move towards the subtle. Now, we know there's a subtle realm of reality beyond form. That's formlessness, pure consciousness itself. So there's no thoughts, no feelings, no objects, no forms. And that reality is always there. It's just that the mind doesn't actually go there because it doesn't get the charge and the excitation from that experience. Mm. So now we introduce the mantra for that particular quality to move the mind away from form and phenomenon, away from excitation into the least excited state, the most de-excited state. And that transcendent experience beyond thinking, beyond duality, which is object and subject phenomenon, you the subject and the object, which is the point of attention where your mind goes. Mm. Um, we've gone beyond duality now. We've transcended that field of two things, object and subject. And now what we've gone into is non-dual existence. And this is where the mind becomes very still because it's now experiencing the phenomenal blissfulness of pure consciousness, which leaves the mind in a very still state. And this then leaves the body in a very still state. So the reason why we don't share the mantra or write it down or talk about it is because let's say, for instance, you go to a dinner party, you've just been learning to meditate, you tell everyone at the dinner party, hey, I just uh, did this wonderful Vedic or Transcendental Meditation course. And someone says, oh, tell me about your mantra. What was your mantra? And you say, well, they gave me X, Y, Z. Let's just say it's flower. And they go, oh, why would they give you that word? That's a strange word. Why wouldn't they give you om? Or why wouldn't they give you candle? Why wouldn't they give you book? And all of a sudden now there's a conversation around your mantra. Yeah. So next time you go to meditate, oh, when the mantra's... That's right. It's going to go to the form of phenomenon, which is the experience created around your mantra. Now the mind's going to go, yeah, I wonder why they did give me that mantra. Now it's going to be in the realm of thinking, which is the antithesis of what we want the mantra to do, which is to take you to non-thinking. Yeah, yeah. So the healing... So it's only for that reason we recommend not to share the mantra. I think, yeah, that, no, that makes perfect sense because, you know, obviously the whole point of meditation is to try and find that quiet, find that peace. And I think that that's where you and I, you know, have this slightly different approach. 
and I simply because it's a podcast, I can't just sort of sit there and say nothing, you know, and no one's going to tune into 15 minutes of mm-hmm. quiet or, mm-hmm. you know, having said that, you know, I frequently meditate to, um, you know, on YouTube, you can find lots of beautiful singing, people singing, you know, um, 108 ohms or whatever. And that I find absolutely blissful. I love it when I get taken, taken there. But when I'm teaching my meditation, I'm sort of dropping ideas, concepts in. So I'm actually giving people quite a lot to think about when they're meditating. You know, I'm asking them to be very focused on the present moment, on themselves, on their physical body, on, you know, observing what's going on, on observing their energy and observing the inner self. But it's, it's a, I am giving them an object, if you like to think about Mm -hmm. so it's quite I feel like the sort of meditation I that I do is great for giving people ideas to think about and concepts to um, begin to sort of absorb Um, but it is it's 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 almost like a sort of stepping stone to that absolute silence or that that absolute stillness that that everybody knows meditation is but meditation a lot of people come to it going oh it's just too difficult I just can't you know I can't be still I can't you know and I think a lot of people find that really challenging the idea that they've just got to sit there and think of nothing because of course you sit there think of nothing and then what does your brain go it just goes into overdrive and starts thinking about everything so you know I wanted to ask you what you think the um sort of main sort of obstacles to reaching a a good meditation practice are and how to overcome them yeah firstly the meditations you're giving audience sounds wonderful and there's something really powerful about what i call critical thinking um you know to to be intentional about our thinking be critical about our thinking um, plays an important part in the creation of our lives Mm. and the master of the mind so um there's definitely a lot of relevance and significance in those types of practices so um beautiful to hear you doing that um, what also is important, I think, is the ability to experience what's called in Sanskrit Turiya. Turiya, T-U-R-I-Y-A, means the fourth. So we've got thinking, feeling, and um, you know, our thinking state, our physical state, our emotional state. We've got deep sleep. We've got dream state. We've got awake state. We've generally got these three states that we function within and function through. But Turiya is this fourth state, the state of unbounded consciousness, the realization of me beyond the thoughts or the feelings or the physical apparatus until we actually have an experience of that, then we're going to be left really short in the full experience of what reality is. And so the beautiful thing about um, the mantras, and this is coming back to your question about the obstacles people might find with meditation is that the mind doesn't want to not think what the mind wants to do is find charm or pleasure. So the mind is literally looking for charm or pleasure morning and night. And so it will do that until it gets so exhausted that it goes into an unconscious deep sleep, which is where there's no thoughts, but you're not conscious. And so what we want to do, if we want to just experience deep stillness or silence, then we can't just tell the mind to not think because that's not something the mind wants to do. We have to introduce something that plays a role, a function, in taking the mind to something that is already already there, but the mind just doesn't know how to get there, and that's bliss consciousness, the, the depths. The analogy I like to use is 
the surface of the ocean is constantly changing, and that's like the surface of the mind. But if we use the mantra to take the mind deeper and it has that luring effect into the subtle, it becomes a very effortless process. I've taught a class of um, eight-year-olds, 30 of them, uh, in one classroom, and I literally stood in front of the class. I gave them the mantra very quickly. just said, hey, guys, I want you to all start to say this sound with me together. And they're repeating this sound. I said, okay, now just say it a little bit softer. Now do it with your eyes closed and don't say it out loud, but say it inside your head. And for 10 minutes, those children sat there in complete quietness. Uh, They didn't open their eyes. They didn't move around. They didn't fidget. The teacher was just gobsmacked. And the reason why they were able to sit there so comfortably and contented was because their mind was satiated. It had something to present charm to it, and that was the mantra. And the mantra takes the mind deeper and quieter into a very blissful experience. And so I think the beauty and the power of the mantras, I've been studying Eastern philosophy meditation for so many years, and I I teach other meditations as well, particularly in the corporate sector. You know, I can't teach uh, very, I teach Amazon uh, these transcending meditations, but a lot of uh, corporates just want a simple breath meditation. But it's very hard to sustain these types of practices because people don't find them enjoyable. And if we don't find things enjoyable life, we generally don't stick by them because we've developed very charming lives. Mm -hmm. And if it's not charming, then we simply find that it just drops below other preferences that have more pleasure and more charm in them. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's absolutely, I think that's a lovely word that's using charm that we're always searching for for charm and it's not searching for pleasure or joy or contentment charm is is absolutely right I love that and also that image of 38 year olds all sitting absolutely quiet is a is astounding and this is something that I've always um been thinking I've been thinking about this for a long time because I think a lot of people like you and I both you know we come to I mean I've been teaching and practicing yoga since I was in my early 20s but the meditation the spiritual the philosophical side of of um, this practice really only came to to be important in my life maybe in the last 10 years so with um age uh, you know comes this kind of need for something a little bit more substantial a little bit deeper but when you look back at your life and you look back at, at children at the teenagers you go oh my god if only I'd known all of this stuff then <laughs> how much how much would a pain would I have saved myself in my 20s and my 30s or whatever so and I know from having looked at your website that you've got a specific program which is aimed at teens which I think is fantastic you know I'm I'm to be all to be absolutely honest with you I would be terrified to stand in front of a group of of 38 year olds <laughs> be really scary so I admire you hugely but I would love to be able to reach out to the younger generation to teach them to get them in their bodies in yoga to get them in there that you know to be able to find access that peace and that stillness through meditation so what's your sort of um how, how do you go about luring in if you like the the teens who have got so many other charming things to do with their lives <laughs> how do you, you get through to them um it's a great question and you know i've contemplated this a lot i'm actually running a, a kids program in a couple of weeks uh, and i do have the teen program on my website to be honest with you kids very rarely do kids actually want to meditate uh, i don't work with children a lot these days if a parent has asked me that they've got a child that really wants to learn to meditate i'll teach them which is why I'm doing the course in a couple of weeks. 
my what I notice is that children grow through osmosis. And I've got two 19-year-old children, they're twins, a boy and a girl. And what we have is not a problem with the children in the world. What we have is a problem with the parents. We have a very stressed, distracted, overwhelmed, uh, anxious-ridden and very unhealthy collective society. Mm. And uh, I think we need to start with parents first. Uh, we need to start with the adults. And uh, I did, you know, think, oh, wow, I could help so many children if I teach them all to meditate. One thing I find is that children, they, they, they've got to explore the world. You know, they've got to get through a lot of research like we did. And we, we you know, let, let them have their research. Let them explore where fulfillment exists. Let them explore the external world. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll have to do their research and exhaust that. You know, this is why adults are much easier to work with because they kind of get to 30, 40, 50, they've ticked all the boxes, go, I, I did everything I was supposed to do to find fulfillment and I still can't find it. I'm miserable, I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed and I've got the uni degree, I've got the kids, I've got the partner, I've got the house, I've got the great job and what else am I supposed to do? And it's like, oh, now it's time to go within. Oh, okay, great, yeah, let, let me learn to meditate. And there's a lot more enthusiasm because they've kind of, done a lot of research in the outer world and it's time for them to start exploring the inner world. So um, most of my work these days is primarily with adults unless I get a request to do some children. And what you're speaking to there is the sort of the world that we've been all been living in for the last 20, 30 years where, you know, um, the economy has been healthy and, you know, on and off pretty much most of the time people have been, you know, growth is the big thing. You know, you were in the corporate world. It's all about growth. Um, when you work in any kind of corporate situation or, or any kind of job, it's like got that constant sort of push to make everything bigger rather than just sustain but to to find growth and um i feel like you know this the current situation that we're in at the moment in the world you know with the the war in ukraine and so on we are heading towards what could be quite a different looking world and i'm just wondering what your perspective is on the fact that well, so everyone is when people are living a comfortable life and they've, like you say, they've ticked all the boxes and they're still not got that feeling of satisfaction in their soul and they're looking for more. So they turn towards more spiritual um, aspects of life, which is which is wonderful because that will bring them the, the, the you know, the peace that they're perhaps after. When things become challenging, as they may do, as they are for a you know, millions of people in Ukraine for a start, you know, that finding contentment becomes lower down on the priority list as survival becomes, you know, becomes higher up on the priority list. Do you think that this is going to be a shift that we see that affects this sort of wellness industry where people are like, actually, that's like not down on, you know, that's not on my priority list anymore. I just need to exist, survive. And, or do you think that because of the stress and uh, anxiety that it, you know, inevitably brings that people will be more drawn to it? I, I don't know. I mean, we're all in such a strange place right now with what's mm. going on. So I'd love to know what you think. It's a great concept to start to ponder and you know um if you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs you'll see that you know the base need is this be safe you know let's let's prioritize being safe and getting shelter and water and food and as we move up and we get that established and we start looking at okay now that i've got that box ticked and i've got safety now what does it look like to to have you know the next level of need and it starts going into human relationships and self-esteem and you look at these hierarchies of needs and the last thing 
tend to look at is self-actualization or self-realization, that spiritual sort of awakening. Working your way up the chakras, which is my... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, very much so. And that's, you know, Maslow's hierarchy sort of sits up through that. Mm. But my... So I can understand that that's naturally the case. And I think part of our challenge with humans is that we had all of those needs pretty much met, but we still didn't make that, you know, en masse sort of cross that threshold into self-realization and spiritual awakening, unfortunately. And we're paying a price for that because that's something that we should have been doing a long time ago with all of our needs met where we did have them. Uh, What I would love to see happening is that we flip Maslow's hierarchy and put it up the other way. And a lot of people have done that in the world Mm. where they made their spiritual exploration their primary starting point. And what tends to happen when we make that a greater priority is that a lot of the other needs start to work out anyway. When we become more conscious, more aware, more awake, more full of love, more full, more abundant, more filled with gratitude, our relationships get better, our ability to manifest and create money gets better, our ability to be healthier gets better, our ability to secure our needs gets better. And so um, I've kind of talked a lot about this on some podcasts and in some uh, conferences that I spoke at that what the world's missing is, um, unfortunately, is Maslow's hierarchy is upside down and it needs to be the other way around. And we need to make a really high priority one of our first starting points is that we become more aware of our true nature, our spiritual essence, and then from there build everything else on the top of that. You're so right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that we do, we start at the base, we start at the root looking after our survival. Then we start looking for pleasure and relationships. Then we, our sense of self, the love that all sits in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that's a really interesting point. Mm, fascinating um so just let's take a quick turn towards the other thing that you've done which I find really interesting is this movie that you've made the portal so tell me a little bit about that because I've you know I've I've not watched it I'll confess I haven't haven't seen it um because it's behind a paywall and I said I don't know I'll talk to Tom first and then if I'm really (laughs) buy it and see it so how did that come about um tell me a little bit about the portal movie I got so passionate about bringing meditation to the world and I really um, felt that one of the mediums that I could get that message across, you know, I was doing blogs, I was doing YouTube, I was doing um, at this point podcasts and all sorts of other things to share my message. But I really felt on the back of The Secret, they'd taken a very esoteric subject matter, the law of attraction, and penetrated the households of the world. And I got really excited by that because it was the first time that anyone had used film really to convey something I guess if you want to call it a little bit spiritual, a little bit sort of philosophical, Mm. we'd had a lot of documentaries and movies in the past, but this was really crossing a boundary line that we hadn't really crossed before. And that gave me a lot of enthusiasm for making a film about the power of meditation. And this was, you know, back in 2012, it was before all the apps had come out and meditation was still just emerging. And so I wanted to showcase the power of meditation through crisis and in individual personal stories. So we took six individual stories that had all gone through a crisis from very diverse backgrounds um, and very different crisis stories to see them go through a massive transformation and alchemy and show how meditation up against some of these incredible challenges and incredible backgrounds could stack up. And we didn't want to sort of lecture people with, you know, people in lab coats and science and data and statistics. You can get all that on Google. 
we wanted to take them through an experience and the experience in the movie, it's a little bit uncomfortable initially. You know, we move quite quickly in the beginning of the film, a lot of cutting and moving from story to story. A lot of people find that initial part of the film a little bit inaccessible or uncomfortable. And there's for a reason because we're moving them from stress to calm and we're arriving where they're at and we're taking them through this journey and the cuts get sort of longer and slower to the point where we eventually have a meditation in the film. So it's very unique. It's a very different film. Uh, People either really, really love it, uh, like 10 out of 10s or 11 out of 10s, or they really struggle with it. And it's interesting to have a very polarised sort of response to the film. We did want to push the boundary. We did want to make something quite different. We didn't want to sit in the middle at a you know an average film. We wanted something that was um, going to be either amazing for people or something that they just struggled with. So I think we kind of landed there in some respects. But even if people have struggled with it, even if people find it challenging, but then there'll always be that little question, like, well, why was that uncomfortable? What did it trigger in me that... Yeah, if they've got the capacity to self-reflection, for sure. We had one Hollywood star who had seen it, um, very, very big following in a lot of uh, Marvel films, and um, she said she stormed off into the forest where she lived and cried for two hours because of the the trigger that the film had done in her, which had challenged her about humanity because it really questions humanity where we're going to the point where it hypothesises an idea that we're either going to have an enlightened planet or we're going to self-destruct. And either of those are very high probability in the not-too-distant future. So um, we're kind of at that fork in the road now and what we do now is going to determine the outcome really. Yeah. And I feel like there's a, a lot of the people, you know, obviously you and I sort of operate in spheres where we talk to people who are in the same kind of field as us. And so maybe I'm biased, but I feel like there's a lot of people, energy workers, healers and so on, who are doing so, working so hard to bring the light into the world, you know, to bring our energy, our, this positive energy um, into the world to try and spread it. And I, I do feel like people are reaching for it. Um, so, yeah, anything and everything that we can do to get ourselves closer to the broader um, consciousness of being in a positive light is worth doing everything and anything that we can do yeah yeah it's happening you know it's exponential the amount of knowledge and wisdom and techniques and tools that are coming out into the world and you know the fact that you're in uk and i'm in australia right now and having this discussion is testimony to the fact that this change is taking place and we're um spreading like wildfire wildfire the uh i guess the truth Mm. Wisdom, truth, and love and light is is um you know is penetrating um, the darkness very very quickly, which is really exciting to see. And there'll be some challenges in that. There'll be some you know um, George Lucas who did meditation, you know his whole Star Wars trilogy or more than trilogy now was built on the idea of light and dark forces playing themselves out. Mm. And so we're seeing this on the planet now in a big way where um, this consciousness, this awareness is wisdom and spirituality is really starting to um, not just um, penetrate the households of the world but really play a, a part in shifting structures and systems and governance which will, will, will play out in a bigger way over time and it'll get a little bit messy but um, that's all part of what needs to happen as we move into what we call a game B world or an enlightened planet. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, when you go out and you talk to people and, as, you know, personally, when I go, everybody that I've talked to who is in energy work and, uh, you know, everyone's saying, God, the energy in the world right now is just so crazy. It's so weird. It's, you know, really, um, yeah. So we need to, we need to try our best. We've got to really work at it, I feel, at the moment to keep that energy going. There, there are still a lot of people who are close to it, but I persist. And I think that if everybody who, you know, is listening to this, everybody who um, has a, an urge and a and sees and understands the need to keep spreading this, um, just this positivity, just this love is, is, is really what it is. If they keep spreading that to as many people as possible, then yeah, exponentially, hopefully it will spread and we can, we can bring that, you know, um, universal energy, but more into harmony, a little bit more, a little bit more positivity because, you know, there's a lot of scared act, a scared energy out there. There's a lot of, mm. um, yeah. And I think that's that's uh, it's painful to to witness, and and you can't avoid it. You know, but I think one of the main things that we can use in convincing the people who are, you know, dismissive of this spiritual work that we do, but the science behind it. So will you talk to, because I know that you have all this at your fingertips, you speak a little bit to the science behind meditation and like how it's, how it can literally be healing to the body, to the soul, to the mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it plays a part on four levels, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Um, and let's park spiritual because it might be a bit woo-woo or esoteric for some people. Let's just go physical, mental, and emotional. So when we meditate, what happens is the mind becomes quieter and stiller. And when the mind's quieter and stiller, there's less motion, less activity happening in the body. And that puts, particularly in a state of transcendence, when the mind drops into deep state of stillness because it's found pure consciousness or bliss. So now the mind is still and it's alert and awake. So we're conscious, but there's no thoughts. And this can happen in a meditation. We know this has been happening for thousands of years. Monks and, um, you know, ascetics and swamis and sages have been talking and writing about it for so long. And I personally, myself and all of my students experience this at some time in some shape or form. And so when we get into that state, the physiological level of rest is phenomenal. And so we see this incredible orderliness start to happen in the body as it moves out of the sympathetic nervous system and into the parasympathetic nervous system. There's a phenomenal shift. And the problem what we have in the world is we have a lot of stressed people in the sympathetic nervous system state taking a lot of tablets and trying to do a lot of things to try and fix the anomaly, which is really the fact that they're stressed. And Dr. Bruce Lipton from Stanford University Medical School says that 95% of all sickness is a result of stress. So if we want to reduce sickness, this is very much the case in my situation. I had insomnia, I had uh, panic attacks, I had depression, I had anxiety, I had agoraphobia, I was constantly sick with colds and flus, and then I started meditating. And very quickly my body had deep, profound levels of rest. So physiologically my body started to change uh, emotionally or energetically or um, you know, my biochemicals started to change. So I went from having lots of cortisol, adrenaline and norepinephrine in my system to having lots of melatonin, serotonin and oxytocin. This is all scientifically validated. Mm. So if your body is in a stressed response, then you're going to have cortisol and adrenaline in your blood, but you can't feel happy, love, 
and get, you know, a good night's sleep because melatonin, serotonin and oxytocin don't coexist in a stressed body with cortisol and adrenaline. And so we've got a lot of people popping pills to try and get more, more oxytocin and serotonin in their blood, but they're not addressing the underlying cause of why they don't have it in their blood, and that's because they're in a stress response. Mm. So we need to get people a lot calmer. This comes down to the third law of thermodynamics. When people are calm, their physical, mental, and emotional body starts to get cohesive, orderly, and rearrange itself in a more peaceful mode and a more functional mode. And we see this optimization in the form, that's the physical form, mental and emotional. Even our brain functionality starts to operate on a much better level when we're in a peaceful state. That's the parasympathetic nervous system. We get out of that reptilian brain, which has very limited brain functionality. We see this contraction in the frontal lobe of the brain when we're constantly stressed. When we're not stressed, when we're calm, and we're in a deep meditation experience or we sustain a deep calmness outside of meditation, we get greater brain functionality, greater capacity to create and get insights and cognitions and intuitions. And so overall, it just makes your life better on every level. So it's quite um, quite scientific, really. Yeah, it is. And I do, I, I, love, um, I love finding the science because, you know, I, having practiced yoga and meditation for many years, you sort of do it because you know it makes you feel good, but you don't know exactly why it makes you feel good. So I think it's always useful to have that scientific backing back back up you know and I, I was reading I'm sure you've read Dr Joe Dispenza his book I absolutely adore which has so many fantastic scientific um uh, examples and and references to why it is just uh you know what what physiologically what actually is happening in the cells what actually is happening chemically within the body when you take yourself into a state of of meditation um you know the what what one of the studies that he talks about which i always find so engaging and i always tell my students about this is that experiment he did with i think it was like 117 people in in a workshop and he got them all to um take themselves into a state of elevated emotions so just joy or love um you know gratitude just 10 minutes um three times a day, I think it was, over the course of this weekend. And he took levels of um, uh, uh, it's, uh, an immune function enzyme that you can find in the saliva, so it's fairly easy to, to, to detect. And, um, you know, from the beginning to the end of the weekend, just by taking themselves into this elevated state, just by changing the vibration, the energy within their bodies, they were able to increase this immune indicator by nearly 50% over overall as an average over all of these 100, you know, over 100 people. And I just find that so engaging. I just love facts like that because this is the scientific actual, you know, proof that this that this works that it changes the state of mind it will change your physiological um being and and make you a stronger healthier person so yeah uh, thank you for that i think it's it's fantastic to have that explanation so um the one of the questions that i wanted to ask you is and this is purely because you are the first male you're the first man that i've had on my podcast so you know kudos to you oh wow i feel honored (laughs) (laughs) um but i do find that in this and maybe it's just because i'm 
female, you know, but I do find that in this, um, I do find that in this, um, you know, certainly in the world of yoga, um, it's very female heavy, certainly, you know, at a grand roots level. And I know that there are many fantastic, um, you know, male teachers and most, you know, pretty much all gurus, you know, Mr. Anger was my guru, um, BKS Anger. He had a daughter, Gita, who became, you know, the leader of that sort of particular um, path of yoga. But on the whole, classes are full of women. I have I have a couple of male clients and they come to me as private clients because they don't necessarily feel that comfortable in a class surrounded by ladies. Um, and I just wanted to ask you whether, as a well, first of all, do you find that there is a, a gender divide, or do you find that it's just all and everybody? But you're a man, so you probably attract more male energy. But I find that I feel that the that um, women are more open to this work, uh, yoga, meditation, than your average bloke. And so I'm just, you know, he's a good Aussie man. You know, tell me, <laughs> what's your perspective on on that? Yes, yeah, certainly the case. We're seeing that across the world uh, in retreats, online courses, and we're seeing uh, a phenomenal shift being led by the females of the world. Mm. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. You know, initially, if you look at the past, pre, I guess, even 1970s, if we look at the ashrams and the yoga studios and the yoga shalas and the monasteries of the world, they were predominantly about 99% men. So that spiritual seeking, that spiritual work was predominantly done by men, but they lived very remotely and it was very reclusive and it wasn't very integrated into the world. Mm-hmm. And partly that's probably a suppression and oppression of the, the, the male, uh, from the male of the female. Um, you know, particularly in India, they weren't allowed to do certain things and there was this sort of exclusion that was happening, which is a very um, problematic situation for the planet and has been for a long time, which is having men pretty much run things, which was not a very healthy uh, outcome for the planet as a whole and still isn't. But what we're seeing now is um, those barriers starting to get dropped down and we're seeing this arising on the, on the planet of feminine energy. So we're seeing a lot more feminine energy coming through the planet, um, which is very healthy, which is also going to uplift and empower a lot of females who have predominantly more feminine energy than males. Um, so, um, what we're starting to see is this phenomenal emergence of the empowered feminine, um, which is really, really exciting. In, in the Vedic tradition, there's a wonderful um, feminine goddess called Durga who sits on top of a, a tiger or a lion with eight limbs, and it represents her power to manifest um, and also to create and to uh, be multitasking, incredible organiser, but also to sitting on top of the lion or the tiger to be fully empowered over the kingdom and the domain uh, of, of the world, not just as far as controlling the world, but to sort of not be a slave or a ser- servant to it, but to be empowered in our own sovereign right. And so we're seeing this, um, this Durgas of the world suddenly rise up and realise their full capacity. And the thing with the, in yoga, you might recall Stira and Sukha, Sukha being the feminine and Stira being the masculine. And Sukha is the ability to be soft and gentle and supple. And Stira is the, the rigidity of the, the masculine. So in warrior pose, we have the rigidity of the legs and the rigidity of the torso. Then we have the, and the rigidity of the arms. In a tree, we have the rigidity of the trunk and the rigidity of the limbs 
of the tree and they hold the tree upright and we hold the torso upright and we need stira in the world but we also need suka which is the ability to bend and sway in the wind or the ability to have soft breath and soft eyes and soft gentleness and so there's this wonderful yin and yang that comes together if we look at taoism which we see the yin and yang symbols converge to be one whole thing we're starting to find it in each and every one of us as we become more whole in our own right we become more balanced in our masculine and feminine and we embody those two qualities of stira and suka within us individually and that's a really um important part for us to move into in the world and so this is uh, early stages but i think that's what we're going to start to see as people become more embodied and more whole in their own masculine and feminine dynamic mm. and in terms of attracting more men towards this work i mean you've said in your retreats you find that they're more female heavy than male how how do we as conscious leaders you know attract more men to do this work because I think, um, you know, in may, helping men to understand that they have a feminine energy within them, as all women have a masculine energy within them, you know, as you said, the yin yang, we both, we all embody both of those. Mm. Um, how do we uh, attract men to this work without making them feel like they're losing their masculinity? How can we in, encourage more men to come to this um, to this work yeah what i'm noticing particularly here in australia is um, a very big emergence of new work for men it's really exciting and it has a very different um, sort of edge and flavor to it and essence to it um, and it's these incredible men's groups that are starting to emerge spiritual men's groups and it has a slight twist on things you know it's a slight different format um, we're seeing things that men are drawn to like one of the i've got a couple of clients that do men's work uh, coaching clients and they do things like wilding, you know, taking men out into the bush and teaching them how to, um, you know, integrate more um, successfully into the wild and regather and relearn some of their natural tendencies. But within that, you know, they have these incredible, if you look at the um, wonderful Indigenous populations, they used to have men's groups where they would sit around in circles and they would have um, sort of men's groups where they would communicate and talk. Um, really deeply uh, and have a different way of doing things than, um, I guess, traditional spiritual um, practices. And within that, they would have things like their meditation, their yoga and breath work and stuff like that. But it's, it seems to be taking on this new emergence mm. from what I'm seeing here in Australia anyway, where there there is a movement happening of, of um, this truly um, conscious and gentle yet strong masculine um, and male sort of um, warrior that's starting to emerge mm. and i think that's the sort of the full sort of spectrum that we've got to go through yeah. and hoping that that starts to gather more momentum as time goes on yeah no i love that as a because it's it's funny isn't it because as you take a, a, a group of men out into the wild to find you know to to you know, it feels like it's all, oh, we're going to go out into the wild, but actually what they're doing is connecting with mother nature. They're connecting with the That's female right, yeah. energy of the world, um, of, the, yeah. of the planet, which I think is, is rather magical. Yeah. Well, we just got to keep plugging away and um, us, us uh, yeah, encouraging men to do that work and, and get involved. You know, I, I fully, um, you know, the teenagers, the men, let's get them all on board. <laughs> 
it's easy to get impatient. I just want to give people some hope and inspiration that this is very, very, if we look at things on a very macro perspective and we look at things over 10 to 20, 30,000 timeline, year timelines, um, and it's really only 20, 30 years that we've had this idea of spiritual awakening, of conscious discussions enter into households of the world. It never has been that domain. And so we've got to give ourselves some time. Mm. It might be a couple of generations, but know that there's a phenomenal shift taking place. It's already in motion. There's already incredible things happening. And if this is where we are now after that short period of time of it starting to integrate into households, what is it going to be like in another 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Yeah. And so uh, it, it's, it, it's, it, the wheels are in motion and things are actually evolving. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, when we go back thousands, a couple of thousand years ago, I suppose, you know, India and China, they were already like fully in touch with that knowledge of the subtle body of our energies, you know, they are the ones that came up with the, uh, you know, with yoga, with Tai Chi, with this, this conscious um, energy work. Um, and it was accepted. It wasn't necessarily elite. I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that it back when it, all these things, it was, that was medicine. You know, that was how you healed yourself was by working with energy. And then we kind of forgot it over those thousand years. And of course, it's never really been in the West. So you're absolutely right. And in the West terms of the West, um, it is really a recent a recent development. So on that in the, on that basis, I think we can congratulate ourselves for doing you know making strides. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you remembering that China and India weren't perfect either. So you oh, know God. we we haven't quite gotten there yet as a planet. So we're 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 making headway, but yeah. we're we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So listen, Tom, we've been we've been an hour now on the science mm-hmm. call. So I should let you go to your evening. The night is drawing in. But is there anything else that you want to just say or chat about quickly before we go? I guess for everyone who's listening in, you know, they, they might be challenged by the world or stressed or overwhelmed. You know, this is a very um difficult time as we go through a transition. This is really just a transition. I always liken it to renovating a house and I've done quite a few of these where we take an old home that is probably on its you know getting a bit run down and its status quo is sort of waning and then we we have a vision for it and we get very excited by the vision because we know when we rip off the kitchen sink and take out the tiles and the old carpets and the old um Venetian blinds and we put it through a renovation in the interim while it's going from its old status quo into a new vision and a new emergence of something more profound and quite remarkable, there's quite a deteriorated state that it has to go through. And we can feel during the middle of that a little bit depleted, a little bit worn out, a little bit doubting. But the fact is what keeps us going is that we know that we have a vision and we know what it's going to look like. We've actually walked through the architect to architect's plans on a 3D drawing. And so we, we, we're happy to keep going through that renovation because we can see and know clearly what's on the other side. And I think the thing that challenges a lot of humanity is they don't quite have a vision for what's on the other side. They don't quite know what's there. And that's what we want to start having a conversation around. It's what we talk a lot about in the film is what does an enlightened planet look like? And that's something we have to start contemplating because we're not far off making this become a reality, but we do need to have a vision for it. Yeah. 
Beautiful. Okay, really nicely said. And again, that's back to that keeping that manifestation in our minds, keeping a positive mm. mindset and mm. and keeping a healthy mind and body through meditation. Yeah. Absolutely. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me along. It's great to chat. And look, if anyone wants some, um, I've got a free book. We'll put it in the show notes. I'll give you a link. And um, if they want a book on how to reduce anxiety and uh, stress and um, depression in the world, um, I'm happy to share that with everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. So there we are. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the conversation interesting and feel inspired to continue and deepen your meditation practice. As always, my guided meditations will continue. And if you are interested in learning how to integrate your meditation with yoga and breath work through the beautiful lens of the chakra system, then please check out my online course on my website, chakra-way.com. Of course, all Tom's links are in the show notes, so please go and check those out as well. So until next time, thank you again. Sending much love. Take care. Bye-bye now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.